cordis tibracal is a bony surface inferior to the lateral tibial condyle and it is the insertion site of the iliotibial band. Again, iliotibial band inserts laterally on Gerdes tubercle. Common signs seen in ankylosing spondylitis. We have raminous lesion, shiny corner, squaring of the vertebral body due to the erosion of the uh, disc margins developing uh, due to erosion. So you get the squaring of the vertebral body. Uh, delicate syndesmophyte, and these are not osteophytes. This is this is osteous uh, bridging along the uh, vertebral mar margin, which leads to bamboo spine, or which is the late stage of spinal ankylosis. Finally, Anderson lesion, which is pseudoarthrosis in the completely ankylosed spine. What is attenuation in ultrasound? Attenuation is the decrease in amplitude of the ultrasound wave as it penetrates deeper into the tissue. So the deeper the ultrasound wave, the smaller the amplitude changes, which is compensated for by having TGC or time gain compensation. So the time gain compensation increases the uh, electronically increases the magnitude of the ultrasound wave or the amplitude of the ultrasound wave that is coming from a deeper tissue relative to the ultrasound wave that is coming from a superficial tissue in order to give a similar appearance on the ultrasound uh, on the screen for the deep and superficial uh, portions of the tissue. And these are the knobs that you on the side, you see on the sides in a linear fashion where you can change the amplitude. Again, attenuation is the loss of amplitude as the ultrasound wave travels deeper. And this can be compensated for using the time gain compensation. And these are the linear knobs that you can correct on the ultrasound machine. For bowel, for herniated bowel, what is the difference between strangulated or inca incarcerated bowel? So strangulated bowel is bowel that is ischemic uh, due to uh, compromise in blood flow. Incarcerated, this is not an imaging appearance, rather it's bowel that is stuck in the hernia sac and cannot, cannot come out. And so this is a physical exam sign and should not be used in imaging. H-shaped vertebral body is seen in sickle cell disease. So H-shaped vertebral body seen in sickle cell disease versus picture frame vertebral bodies typically seen in Paget's disease which is increased density on the periphery of the vertebral body. Name of the paraganglioma based on the location. Paraganglioma at the carotid bifurcation is called carotid body tumor or glomus corticum. Paraganglioma at the jugular foramen is jugular paraganglioma or glomus jugulare. Now, glomus jugulare is the most common jugular foramen tumor. Typical CT appearance of uh, jugular paraganglioma is moth-eating bone destruction at that location. So again, carotid bifurcation, paraganglioma is known as carotid body tumor or glomus corticum, and paraganglioma at the jugular foramen is known as jugular paraganglioma or glomus jugulare. Management of hypoplastic left heart the stage 1 
Norwood procedure. This is typically performed in the first few days of life, and the goal from it is obviously to supply the systemic circuit as well as the pulmonary circuit. Typically, because it's hypoplastic left heart, the aorta and the systemic circulation is not being supplied adequately. So the goal now is to create a single atrium and a single ventricle. We have a single dominant ventricle, so we can ignore the left side of the heart of the ventricle. We excise the intraatrial septum, now creating a single atrium, and then we redirect the aorta from the left ventricle into the right ventricle. Now the aorta is supplied strictly by the right ventricle, and we remove the main pulmonary artery from this picture at this stage. We need to supply the pulmonary artery. In the meantime, pulmonary artery can be supplied by a PDA, but a PDA is excised because it's not a permanent solution and it can uh, naturally or as expected from a PDA closes in the first few days of life. So once we excise the PDA, we create what we call a modified bilolactosing shunt, which is basically a graft connecting uh, arterial supply from the aortic arch into the pulmonary artery. Typically, the right subclavian uh, connection between the right subclavian artery first branch of the aorta into the uh, pulmonary artery, typically the right because of proximity. So you just stitch uh, connection between the right subclavian artery and the right pulmonary artery. This will supply the pulmonary circuitry. And the systemic circuitry is supplied through the right ventricle pumping into the aorta now. And the aorta from the right subclavian, we uh, from the subclavian artery, we supply the pulmonary artery by the modified bilactosing shunt, which is a temporary solution. Now, this is all temporary, uh, a temporizing measure. And then in the next stages, we'll go into creating a more modified circuit. Again, to summarize the Norwood uh, procedure or stage one of left uh, hypoplastic heart uh, correction, goal is to create a single ventricle and a single atrium. You create a single atrium by excising the intraatrial septum and then redirecting the aorta or the origin of the aorta and the pulmonary artery into one big branch that pours blood into the aortic arch. Then from the aortic arch, from the first branch of, of, off of the arch, you supply the pulmonary circuit and excise the persistent PDA because it will uh, eventually close. And supply the pulmonary circuit again through the bellalactosing shunt or modified bellalactosing shunt, to be exact. SAM or systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve is typically seen in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which causes narrowing of the outflow tract. So the mitral valve, which is between the left atrium and the left ventricle, one of the leaflets would fly in into the aortic valve, this will cause stenosis or narrowing of the outflow tract. This is typically seen in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What's the FADPAD sign on lateral chest radiograph or the OREO sign? It is when you have the hypodense thick and then hypodense, uh, which represents uh, pericardial fluid visible between the retrosternal mediastinal fat and the subepicardial fat. So uh, when the fluid accumulates, the pericardial effusion accumulates between the uh, retrosternal mediastinal fat and the subepicardial fat, which creates a uh, 
radio opacity, which is the fluid, and it's known as the fat pad sign or the Oreo sign. Oreo cookie, obviously. Enlarged vestibular aqueduct syndrome is a spectrum of congenital hearing loss associated with enlarged vestibular aqueduct may lead to progressive hearing loss, particularly if playing contact sports. On imaging, the vestibular aqueduct should not be larger than the posterior semicircular canal, which are typically seen on the same level on axial plane. It's important to have a, a to be able to visualize the vestibular aqueduct on CT scan and identify it uh, to identify uh, this pathology. So again, uh, enlarged vestibular aqueduct, typically larger than the posterior semicircular canal, and this can lead to progressive hearing loss, especially in playing contact sports. Typical pulmonary nodule seen in respiratory bronchiolitis interstitial lung disease, RBILD. Again, typical nodule seen in respiratory bronchiolitis interstitial lung disease. We see innumerable subcentimeter centrilobular nodules of ground glass attenuation. So ground glass nodules in centrilobular distribution. None of these nodules should extend into the pleural surface. This nodule can also be seen with other pathologies such as infection, but uh, they are also seen with respiratory bronchiolitis and interstitial lung disease. Branches of the celiac trunk, we get the splenic artery, left gastric, and common hepatic artery. Celiac trunk gives us the left gastric, splenic, and common hepatic artery. What are the branches of the common hepatic artery? So the common hepatic artery gives us the gastroduodenal artery, GDA, and then it gives us the right gastric. After it gives the right gastric artery, it becomes the proper hepatic. The proper hepatic artery divides into the left hepatic artery and the right hepatic artery. Typically, the cystic artery arises from the right hepatic artery. Again, common hepatic artery gives us the GDA and the right gastric. After the right gastric, the common hepatic artery becomes the proper hepatic artery. The proper hepatic then divides into the left hepatic artery and the right hepatic artery. The cystic duct typically arises off of the right hepatic artery. Branches of the GDA. The GDA gives us the right gastroepiploic and the superior pancreatico duodenal artery. The, so GDA typically gives us the right gastroepiploic and the superior pancreatico duodenal artery. All right. Branches of, of the splenic artery. The splenic artery gives us obviously the splenic artery that supplies the splenium, uh, the spleen. The short gastric artery, which are branches off of the splenic artery near the the hilum of the spleen, and finally the left gastroepiploic artery. So, splenic artery gives us the left gastroepiploic, the short gastric, and the splenic artery itself that supplies the spleen. Typical radiation exposure from abdomen pelvis CT scan, get 10 millisieverts. So typically a patient gets an average of 10 millisieverts from an abdomen pelvis CT scan. What is endometrioma? This is not to be confused with endometriosis, which is a uterine pathology. Endometrioma is endometrial tissue in the ovary. Typically cystic ovarian masses that uh, result from repeated hemorrhage of the endometrial tissue implants. Again, it's not endometriosis. 
critical differences. Endometrioma in the ovary, endometriosis in the myometrial uh, muscle or the muscles of the uterus. Endometrioma is hormone responsive. Endometriosis is not hormone responsive. And on ultrasound, we have a cystic lesion with diffuse homogeneous low-level internal echoes. And there is an echogenic nodule typically, which is from calcium. Again, endometrioma, different from endometriosis. Endometrioma is endometrial tissue in the ovary. It is hormone responsive, unlike endometriosis. And from repeated hemorrhages due to hormone response throughout the period, we'll have a diffuse homogeneous low-level internal echoes in a cyst. And it has an echogenic focus that is from calcium or hemocedrin deposit. One of the two, I'm not entirely sure. Pediatric posterior fossa tumor, there are typically four, medulloblastoma, polycytic astrocytoma, brainstem glioma, and ependymoma. Again, pediatric posterior fossa tumors are four tumor, medulloblastoma, polycytic astrocytoma, brainstem glioma, and ependymoma. We're going to come back to uh, this question later, but let's remember the tumors and the ages which they occur. So posterior fossa tumor, medulloblastoma, typical age 5 to 9 years old, polycytic astrocytoma, 5 to 15 years old, brainstem glioma, 3 to 10 years old, and ependymoma, 1 to 5 years old. So ependymoma is the earliest, then brainstem glioma. Asymmetric multifocal white matter lesions that may become confluent. Typically, involves the arcuate or, or subcortical U-fibers. What are these subcortical U-fibers? Are myelinated tracts at the gray-white matter junction that connects the that connects cortex to cortex. So again, asymmetric multifocal white matter lesions that may become confluent and rarely uh, may exhibit mass effect or enhancement. Diagnosis, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. What is the underlying pathology? It's demyelinating disease in immunocompromised patients caused by reactivation of the JC virus and is a progressive demyelination again without an inflammatory response because they are immunosuppressed. Typical group seen in primary and AIDS patients, so uh, can be uh, seen in AIDS patients who might present with HIV encephalitis which is different because HIV encephalitis is symmetrical and it spares the, spares the subcortical white matter and cause atrophy of the cortex. This is progressive and multifocal, so it's different than HIV encephalitis. Finally, uh, immunocompromised patients outside of AIDS, AIDS group is post-transplant or autoimmune disorder patients, typically seen in AIDS patients. And the key distinguishing feature that they want to get at in the test is differentiating uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy from HIV encephalitis, which is symmetrical and spares subcortical white matter. And uh, PML does not rheumatoid arthritis in the hand and wrist. So rheumatoid arthritis is a non-bone forming uh, pathology. And it typically spares the DIP and mainly involves the um, MCP, PIP, and the carpal articulation. Earliest sign we see is soft tissue swelling and periarticular osteopenia, which reflects the hyperemia and synovitis, the inflammation around the joint. 
erosions can be seen early in the disease, typically along the radial aspect of the second and third metacarpal heads and the radial and ulnar aspect of the base of the proximal phalanges and the ulnar styloid. We can see joint subluxation such as Boutonnier's deformity, which is PIP flexion and DIP hyperextension, or Swan's neck deformity, which is PIP hyperextension and DIP flexion. Finally, ulnar subluxation of the fingers at the MCP joint. Again, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, late stages can present with joint subluxation. We have three types. You said butternase deformity, swan's neck deformity, and ulnar subluxation. Ulnar subluxation occurs at the MCP joint. We said the MCP joint and PIP joints are typical joints that are involved with this disease process. Swan neck deformity is PIP hyperextension and flexion at the DIP, and butternase deformity is PIP flexion and DIP hyperextension. Additionally, we see that it can involve the radial aspect of the second and third metacarpal head and the radial and ulnar aspect of the bases of the proximal phalanges, as well as the ulnar styloid. MRI presentation of hepatic steatosis. So the question at this point is trying to get to in and out of phase imaging and what does in and out of phase imaging do? It detects the intracytoplasmic lipid, which is seen in hepatic steatosis. So if it was uh, macroscopic or extracytoplasmic fat, we could see it as a T2 bright uh, signal. But we're talking about a, a TT, T2 and T1 uh, bright signal. But we're talking about intracytoplasmic fat. And the way to make this appear is doing the in-phase and out-of-phase imaging. So on in and out-of-phase imaging, there is signal drop out on the out-of-phase imaging. So typically, it would be bright on the in-phase, meaning the liver, similar to the spleen. And then on out-of-phase imaging, the spleen will remain bright and the liver will have signal drop out, which will become uh, dark on the out-of-phase imaging. So this can be used to grade steatosis. It's important to note that this depends on the ratio of intracytoplasmic fat to water. So typically, at 50%, we have maximum intracytoplasmic ratio fat and water interaction. So we'll have the greatest signal drop out. As the content of the intracytoplasmic fat increases, we'll start having less signal drop out because it will be fatty. And so you'll get the uh, normal properties and you will have no signal dropout because the whole concept of in and out of phase imaging is the resonance frequency of the uh, fat and water proton are different. But when you get over 50%, as you, you increase the content of the intracytoplasmic fat, you lose that property. Again, they're not going to go into that much detail, but the in and out of phase gradient imaging measures intracytoplasmic fat or microscopic fat, and there would be signal drop out on the out of phase imaging consistent with hepatic steatosis. It is used to grade hepatic steatosis, but know that there is limitation to this study in severe steatotic patients where there isn't much fluid and the cell is filled with fat, you will not get the signal drop out. But then at that stage, you'll see additional finding consistent with steatosis. I'm just going to talk uh, quickly about 
rectal MRI and uh, specific features that we need to worry about. Uh, important staging criteria for rectal MRI is the distinguish between T3, A, B, and C. So stage T3, A, where there is a breach of the muscular wall. 3B and 3C means there is extension greater than 5 millimeter past muscularis propria. Again, 3BA, which is the breaching of or involvement of the muscular wall. 3B and C is extension greater than 5 millimeter past uh, muscularis propria. And obviously, uh, stage 4 is extension into the peritoneal re uh, reflection or extension beyond the colon. Contrast is not typically used in rectal MRI. Rectal lymph nodes, the size is not as important as the morphology and enhancement if contrast is used. What I say by morphology is typically there's lymph nodes are oval in shape. If it becomes round in shape, that increases uh, the, uh, that is a worrisome feature for lymph nodes, as in everywhere. But in uh, the size is not as important as other uh, cancer diseases. Again, key distinguishing feature, knowing if the muscularis propria is involved, and if it's involved, is there extension beyond 5 millimeter past muscularis propria? T3 and T3B and C, difference between B and C is not as important as knowing that it extends 5 millimeter past the muscularis propria, and extension into the peritoneal reflection is stage four, uh, T4. Structures both anterior and posterior to torus tuberius. So torus tuberius is the mucosal elevation in the lateral aspect of the nasopharynx. Anterior to torus tuberius, we have opening of the eustachian tube, and posterior to the torus tuberius, we have the fossa of Rosenmuller. Again, posterior is fossa of Rosenmuller. Anterior to it is the opening of the eustachian tubes. Physics. What direction do chemical shift artifact manifest in? It manifests in the frequency encoding gradient, typically left to right. So frequency encoding gradient uh, is the direction that the chemical shift artifact manifests in. Do you remember the pediatric posterior fossa tumors that we talked about prior? So we said we have four common pediatric posterior fossa tumor. There are medulloblastoma, polycytic astrocytoma, brainstem glioma, and ependymoma. We also said that based on age of occurrence, ependymoma is the earliest one, occurs at one to five years of age, brainstem glioma at three to 10 years of age, polycytic astrocytoma occurs at five to 15 years of age, and medulloblastoma occurs at five to nine years of age. Now, the location, medulloblastoma is at the roof of the fourth ventricle. This is in distinction from ependymoma, which occurs at the floor of the fourth ventricle. I hope they don't ask this question. Uh, brainstem glioma occurs in the pons, midbrain, and medulla. Well, given the name, brainstem, so it occurs at the brainstem structures. Uh, polycytic astrocytoma is a hemispheric lesion. Now, the appearance of, we'll start with polycytic, or uh, a good way of looking at it is polycystic. So it's a cyst with mural nodule uh, with surrounding edema. Again, polycytic or polycystic is a cyst with mural nodule. Medulloblastoma is a fast-growing uh, tumor. 
that has characteristic of re diffusion restriction. It's the only tumor of the four that displays diffusion restriction. Brainstem glioma is a slow-growing tumor, and ependymoma, we said floor of the fourth ventricle, again, it's also slow-growing tumor. Now we'll talk about post-contrast enhancement. Obviously, medulloblastoma has heterogeneous enhancement and leptomeningeal enhancement because of the invasion, uh, heterogeneous because of areas of necrosis. As we said, it does restrict diffusion. Uh, ependymoma does not restrict diffusion. Uh, it is, uh, it does have heterogeneous enhancements. Uh, brainstem glioma, we said this is a slow-growing tumor. It has a minimal enhancement. And polycytic astrocytoma, we said there is a nodule in polycytic astrocytoma. So the nodule is what enhances in polycytic astrocytoma. Again, to recap, medulloblastoma has heterogeneous enhancement and leptomeningeal enhancement because of the extension of the tumor. Polycytic astrocytoma, which is a cyst with a nodule, the nodule enhances. Brainstem glioma, we said this is a midline uh, tumor and it has minimal enhancement. We said it's very slow process. Ependymoma, it has enhancement, typically heterogeneous, uh, the floor of the mouth, and typically they want you to distinguish between medulloblastoma and ependymoma. Key difference is uh, diffusion restriction. Medulloblastoma restrict diffusion. Another uh, T1 and T2 characteristics, uh, medulloblastoma is T1 hypo-intense uh, hypo and T2 variable, obviously because of the edema and the dead cells, it's variable in T2. Polycytic astrocytoma, we said it's a polycystic, so it has a cyst, so it would be T2 bright, T1 dark signal, again, polycystic, if we think of it this way, we can get a lot of the imaging features. Polycystic, there is a cyst and there is a nodule. The nodule enhances, uh, the cyst predominantly has the T2 characteristics and it's T2 bright, T1 dark, uh, brainstem glioma, we said midline process, slow process, minimal enhancement. It has T2 hyper-intense uh, signal and T1 hypo-intense signal, just uh, similar to the brain, uh, the polycystic, polycystic astrocytoma. Finally, ependymoma, T1 can be iso or hypo-intense, and T2 can be hyper uh, in the cystic component if there are cystic component. Don't worry about that. Key things to know, ependymoma, uh, heterogeneous enhancement, but does not restrict on diffusion. If the age is going to be a factor, if you can remember it, the age is much younger than medulloblastoma. So one to five, five to nine, they can be really tricky and give you five years old. Uh, medulloblastoma restricts diffusion, heterogeneous signal with leptomeningeal enhancement as it extends into uh, leptomeningeal because it's a very aggressive tumor. Polycytic astrocytoma, we said we say polycystic astrocytoma will help us remember it. It a cyst with an enhancing mural nodule. The nodule enhances. The cyst gives it the T2 property, uh, which is hyperintense on T2 and hypointense on T1. Brainstem glioma has similar characteristic pattern as polycystic astrocytoma, except it's not a cyst and it is a midline lesion.